I'm really pleased now to introduce tonight's moderator, our friend Jory Finkel. Jory Finkel is the arts reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Before joining the paper in 2010, she covered the LA art scene for a range of publications, including the New York Times, Art in America, Art News, and Town and Country. She got her start as a writer and editor in New York and spent six years as senior editor of Art and Auction magazine. Please give a warm welcome to Jory Finkel. Thank you so much for coming. It's so nice to see some familiar faces as well. Great turnout. Um, and I could not be happier with this panel that Zocalo has put together. We have Timothy Potts, the new Getty Museum director, uh, finishing his first week on the job. That's right. Uh, I, I told him he might get a pass out of one of the questions since it is his first week on the job. Um, and he comes to us from the Fitzwilliams Museum in uh, Cambridge. Before that, he was the director of the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. Next up, we have Annie Philvin, the director of the Hammer Museum here in LA, um, who has uh, been the director of the Hammer since 1999, is that right? Um, and before that was the director of the Drawing Center in New York. It's good to see you here with us. Um, and Michael Govan, the director and CEO of LACMA, who took that job in 2006, um, and we lured him away from Dia Beacon in New York, and before that, you were at the Guggenheim. Um, and I, thinking about this panel and these panelists, the chance to talk to three museum directors of our leading museums here, uh, made me think back to when I first arrived in Los Angeles, and that was about eight years ago. Um, and I was trying to make sense of the LA art scene for myself, um, this kind of sprawling LA art scene. And like many former New Yorkers, I was having a lot of conversations that were essentially New York versus LA. Subways versus car culture, um, Wall Street versus the Hollywood film, movie industry, um, and what the museum scene was like in New York versus the museum scene here. Um, and one of those conversations took place with Annie Philbin. Um, my first year here, you were nice enough to invite me out to lunch. And I remember there's something she said that she might forget, <laughs> might have forgotten, um, but that, I, that has stuck with me since. And it was something about um, the way that the museum scene here, not being so established, leaves a lot of room for individuals to really make their mark. And it was really about, uh, we were having a conversation, I hope this rings a bell, okay. um, a, a conversation about how um, in New York, often the institutions define the individual when it comes to museums, more than the individual defining the institutions. My example today would be Thomas Campbell at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, that no matter how talented and extraordinary he is, when he took the top job at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, um, that job shaped the way we saw him more than him shaping the way we see the Met. I don't think that's as true in LA. That there's, um, and, and I think we've seen, one of the reasons I'm repeating this um, observation that Annie made is that I think we've We've seen this repeated here in LA over the last decade in many different ways, whether it's Annie and her team at the Hammer Museum starting a new biennial based in LA, um, featuring LA artists, whether it's Michael virtually rebuilding the LACMA campus, um, that we've really seen our museum directors here shape their institutions. Um, and I think if we give Timothy a few years, we may be able to add him to that list and, and look at the ways that he shaped the Getty as well. Um, so thinking about this, this enormous potential for museum directors here to shape their institutions um, is, is one point of entry to our conversation. Um, but my first question is actually going to look a little bit at the flip side of that, which is as much as museums here have potential, they are also vulnerable. And we've seen that happen with MOCA in particular. Um, this summer, MOCA has been the subject of 
countless news stories and conversations. And so I wanted, even though MOCA's director declined to participate in this panel, I wanted to give our panelists a chance to weigh in on what has really become the most urgent conversation this year in terms of the LA art scene. Um, for anyone who hasn't been following it, um, my I don't know, brief summary of what's been going on um, would be that there has there have that people are worried. Um, the people in the LA art world, in particular, are worried about the future of MoCA. Um, curatorial decisions made that seem to reflect a mandate to bring in more crowds. Staffing decisions made. Uh, that led to the departure of the chief curator and the manager of education, um, and problems in the board of trustees that led to the departure, the resignation of four artists who had been on the board. Um, this is familiar to many of you, I'm sure, but uh, as a summary, you know, many people would describe it as a kind of identity crisis uh, that followed a financial crisis MoCA had. And what I'd like to ask our panelists today, just as our first question, um, maybe the hard question, the hardest question, um, is what you think MOCA's next steps should be. We're gonna let Timothy answer that one. Yeah, right? I gonna, <laughs> he gets to answer that, right? <laughs> All the questions. For a next step, but you know, considering the urgency of the no. situation, what do you think an immediate step for the museum that the museum ought to take? You're looking at me. I'm looking at both <laughs> of you. Well, despite what I said to you in our early conversation years back, um, I don't believe that, first of all, an individual can unravel an institution in the course of a couple of years. These things take a long time. And problems like MOCA has had are systemic, obviously, and the institution has been for quite a while. I'm sorry, there's, this, there's a hairdo problem with <laughs> this wind out here. Um, but I do think that um, no one donor can change or unravel an institution. No one director can ruin. I mean, I really do think that one of the things we really need to be looking at is the whole picture. And um, I think a lot of what's been written has been um, unfortunate and maybe even unfair. Uh, what are you referring to? I just think that... Um, is this working? Okay. I, I, just, I guess I'm referring to the fact that uh, there's been a lot of uh, villainizing of individuals. So that's what I'm speaking about. Um, I don't know what should happen, but probably something dramatic should happen. Uh, probably something um, wonderful, like all the billionaires on the board decide to write very huge checks and save MOCA in a real way. Um, honestly, I, I can't answer that question, but I, I do think that, uh, obviously, I, I hope that it will be figured out because a weak MOCA is bad for all of us, uh, despite what some people think. Uh, that institution is so important to this city, and um, I'm very much hoping that Michael's going to tell us what should happen there. <laughs> Do I use this, or can it, is that okay? Can you hear me? Or she, yes. See, I asked Joy earlier today if she wouldn't ask this question. Did. So much that did. Um, so I, I, I think there's no absolute prescription beyond I think the beautiful suggestion. Do you want me to just use that? Is that better? Is this better? Yes. OK. Beyond the beautiful suggestion that checks are written and MOCA is supported. But of course, it's a more complicated question than that. Because um, you know what you see in the press recently, in the LA Times especially, that's been chronicling this, is that museums are harder than they look from the outside. 
because they are part of, they belong to us. They're public trusts, right? And everybody in a public trust has an opinion. And part of the issues is that everybody has divergent opinions about which way to go. I, it's interesting that the last discussion about MOCA was not about money. You know, like that was the, the previous issue was about money. That's an easier question. And then the question was about direction. And I think it sort of highlights that, I mean, you, you get this from board members too, where people will say, you know, I run a company or a government or I run a company and art's a pleasure. How hard it could it be to be a museum director? You get that a lot. Like, that must be fun, right? You have the best job in the world. Well, if you asked Jeffrey or asked a lot of people, that wouldn't be the answer you'd necessarily get as much as you would, you would see immense pleasure in the results because there's nothing more beautiful than to see people looking at art. But I guess I would just say, though, to, to put a little spin on it is that maybe to be optimistic is that, um, you know, MoCA was, when I was going into the museum world, MoCA was king of the world. Like, we grew up on MoCA. MoCA was... I think Annie would share this. We were in New York together, and it was so cool that L.A. was leading the way, as L.A. has in many different ways. And so I think we all have a great love of that institution, and we would like to see it survive and thrive. But I would also say that, you know, you think about a contemporary art institution, which is supposed to mimic the issues, the possibilities of the contemporary, and I don't think it's a fixed thing. Like, we think of institutions, museums, that they have to be absolutely fixed. I worked at an institution, DIA, which had huge rises of fortune, falls, rises, falls. You know, that's possible. There's no reason, like, there has to be a straight line, like a heartbeats or, you know, people's lives go up and down. So I think the great hope is that it's an incredible city with huge art potential and so much interest in art that that you don't have to draw a straight line for an institution that goes up because it may have to take rests and rises and falls. And I guess there's just, all I could say is there's a hope for the, for the thrill of the future rise. <laughs> he gets a pass on this, come on. I think so, I think so. <laughs> um, you want to pass? <laughs> We're going to defend you on this if you want to pass. Yeah, no, I just a general comment, um, which is in a way echoing what Ma Michael was just saying. But uh, it's not un it's fact the norm for museums of contemporary art to depend on the generosity of a small number of incredibly generous people. And that constellation you know, comes and goes and changes. So uh, the fact that museums of contemporary art tend to have a slightly rocky road during certain periods is not unusual. Indeed, I think it's, if you look, you know, na not only nationally but internationally, that tends to be the norm. Um, it would be a great tragedy if MoCA went uh, actually got to the point where it, you know, there's a question about its continuing existence. Um, but I would be very surprised if it got to that point. And I think some resolution of the situation um, has to be and I presume will be found. And I say that without any, you know, I've read, only read, uh, all I know is what I've skimmed in uh, a few newspaper articles. So. Um, I know more than, no, more than anyone in the audience tonight, and a lot less. Oh. Thank you, Dulce. Um, so I want to pick up on something, uh, an image that was floated out of the billionaires uh, taking out their checkbooks. Um, because I, I know that was said with a bit of a smile, um, but there is, I, I think, an issue of cultural philanthropy here that comes up, uh, has come up again and again in my coverage of the art scene here. Um, and often it does seem like cultural philanthropy here in L.A. is more of a fantasy than a reality. Um, that, you know, there's, there's the old line about Hollywood giving and how the money flows from Hollywood to world causes, global causes, and medical causes, and hospitals but not museums. Um, and there's basically uh, an idea that cultural philanthropy here, the roots are very, very shallow and the donor base narrow. Do you agree with that? Um, what would you say is the biggest obstacle to cultivating serious cultural philanthropy here? 
biggest obstacle, and then I guess, uh, have, has it changed in your time for those of you who've been in LA a while? And Timothy. Well, let's not forget that the biggest act of cultural philanthropy ever, which created the Getty Museum, took place in Los Angeles. Norton Simon bears the name of a great act of um, uh, philanthropy in the donation of collections. Um, and all of the museums here have, have, have grown and depended critically on the gifts of works of art and uh, other acts of ongoing th philanthropy through. So I don't think we should start with a, um, I'm sure there can be more and in, in many ways it needs to be built on, but there have been very great acts of philanthropy in Los Angeles's history. Um, one of the things that I think is different from a city, say, like New York, is the notion of the, the small giver, in the sense that in New York, if you make relatively good salary, you know, say you make $70,000 a year, the, the, the notion is that everyone gives a certain amount. They give something small. They give $50. I mean, at the, when I ran the drawing center, our base was huge because we collected so many $100 gifts. And I think that's something that, um, I don't know if you feel this way, but it's something that I've seen a big difference in in the last dozen years in my own institution. It's grown enormously. But I did have a sense when I first got here that most people thought, oh, the rich people will take care of that. And unless I can give a million dollars and get my name on something, why should I do that? And I do think that has changed and is changing quite a bit because it really is, you know, the, the middle class that ends up really making a, a city, um, as uh, Barack Obama said last night, citizenship. It, it really is the thing that makes a city have a truly, truly cultural vibrancy. And I think think that has been lacking in this town for uh, many years, and but I do see it changing. Um, the, um, yes? No? No? Okay. No. <laughs> uh, I guess I would say you use the words, the roots are shallow, and all my friends in New York, they said that when I came to LA. They said, oh no, LA doesn't have the tradition of cultural philanthropy, but you have to remember, LACMA, which is supposed to be the, the equivalent of the Met in New York, the Met was established in the 1870s. We were established in 1965. Of course the roots are shallow. It makes perfect sense. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a young city. Um, many things have happened that are marvelous, like the Getty and all of that. I think it's, I truly feel it's a matter of time and of generations who now live here, whose kids are gonna live here. I mean, I know people, we have people on our board whose families have been here since the turn of this last century, not the 2000, although there are some like that too. Um, and people have been here for just a short time in LA, there's a lot of turnover, but that idea of multiple generations where you get that sense of giving, the $100, the, the, it's a family tradition, I think just takes time, and I actually chalk it up mostly to time, and the Hollywood stereotype is just, it's a difficult one, because in fact, Hollywood makes art, too. They're making visual contributions to our culture, and in my experience, I haven't found that really at all. I mean, we had a famous crisis with our uh, film program that I'm well known for on the front page of the LA Times, the speculation was that I didn't like movies, and that's why I killed the film program. I, killed, I suspended it temporarily because of all the programs LACMA ran, there was only one that wasn't funded. Only one. And all the other ones were well supported. And it was film and it just seemed crazy. Like that's crazy, you can't have that happen in LA. So sometimes you like prune the little plant and we did and it worked out really well. And, and now we have tremendous, I think, interest and support. As you know, there's probably gonna be a movie museum uh, that, the, that the Academy will, um, uh, take a build on the campus there and I think there's this sense what I think is great and it's what goes back to the original thing is that's why we're here I think we're here partly and I'm I don't can't speak for for Timothy But we we talked about that we're here in LA because all of us including this audience This is a historic time where we can make a difference It's not unlike to make the comparison in New York of the 40s or the 50s or the 60s when institutions were being made um, not being run and I think that's the exciting thing about being here right now. Going back to the uh, 
wealth issue. I do think there is something about the nature of wealth here too. And I, I talked to a, a big uh, Hollywood producer at one point when I was questioning why Hollywood wasn't more generous. And he said, well, you have to understand, they don't really believe they deserve this. They feel like they lucked out when they got rich. So they don't think it's going to stick around. They can't share it. And there is something to that, this feeling that, you know, you have a TV show that's great. It's going to be gone next season. Or a film, your first film was good, but your second one will never happen. And, and that's a very different kind of wealth than other cities have. Would you agree with that, Michael? That there is a I different... Think, I think... Um, I would say that there's no, mon I don't know, I, I don't know if there's a monolithic Hollywood. People want to say it's monolithic, especially what's happened recently is that it's a very diverse enterprise. The studio system has changed, independent film has risen, there's computer technologies, there's animation, there's actors, there's producers. I think there are corporate heads who, who have traditional um, resources and I mean, actually they've been giving to the museum so I don't feel in any way that we've been underserved by Hollywood as of recently. Um, there's a something we about... We all know you are the one who has tapped Hollywood, Michael. Come on. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I mean, but I, I chalk it up to... He makes it look easy, right? No, no, no. But I chalk it, I chalk it up to right time, right place. Right? There's, we're, just think of it in art history terms. Movies have only been around for 100 years. That business is still fresh. And I think there's now a consolidation and a change and a and a kind of connection to other businesses now, high tech and other things that is actually changing right here before us. I mean, when you think about what's going on in LA right now, someone else has said, and I've repeated it a lot, if you include filmmakers, photographers, designers, artists, sculptors, um, there are more artists, productive artists, working in LA than in any city in any time in the history of the world. I think it's really true. And it's an amazing time to be here for that reason, that we're in this incredibly historic moment. And I think people also feel that, and it's partly why we're here, is that the balance has shifted. We love Europe, but Europe's not necessarily the future. And, you know, the, the rap on New York, if you want to flip it around, is New York's the westernmost village of Europe. And we're the new city, and Latin America and Asia, and the complexity of this city. And actually, the challenges are interesting. When somebody said, well, you can't raise money in LA because it's all spread out, right? That was the other thing that's always said. New York, you get little, everybody's together, and it's concentrated. And I said, yeah, that's a challenge, actually, because everybody's spread out. They don't see each other as much. But the question is, all the new cities are also spread out. Mexico City, Beijing, Shanghai, that, that are growing like weeds, Mexico. And they'll have culture. We just don't know how the philanthropy works, but we could work it out here. I, I guess I feel like there's no limit necessarily to what could be done. Sure. I'd also like to ask you a question about public engagement or uh, the audience here on the ground in LA. I'm assuming that for all of your museums, it's really important to reach people where they, you know, people who live in LA, people who live in Southern California, um, to reach people who might not yet be regular museum goers. Um, I wanted to see if each of you could share with us one thing you are doing or will be doing to really reach people close to home. Well, I, I can't speak about now. I can talk, if I get another pass, about what has happened fairly recently at the Getty, um, which was that the, the, the Getty, given the nature of the collection, which is essentially the European tradition from the Greeks and the Romans through to um, early 20th century and then beyond in the photography department. Um, so the nature of the collections naturally attracted an audience who from that background or with interest in that tradition. Uh, but of course, that's a very small part of the world. Uh, a couple of years ago, the Getty did an exhibition which looked at the Aztec Empire in paired it with ancient Rome. And that saw a doubling uh, in the Latino attendance from something around 12, 13% to about 25%. But the, and that was a wonderful outcome. But even more wonderful was the fact that 
having brought them in for that event, the museum has maintained essentially the same level of Latino attendance, around 25% since then. So the hook can be one thing, but re the real challenge is maintaining the community involvement of all you know, people of all backgrounds, cultures, um, you know, uh, economic levels, and so on. Um, and you, it can be an event, one, one event can have a, a legacy way beyond that one event, but you need to work at it. And of course, the ultimate aim is not to attract a European audience or a background, uh, an audience of European background to see European art, a Latino audience to see Latino art. It's to attract exactly the opposite, to make sure the, uh, to, to encourage and develop an interest in the Latino culture also in European, Chinese, whatever, and those cultures in European, Latino, or whatever. So that's the harder target. We sometimes simplify it by saying, well, we want to capture different community groups by offering them the things we already know they're interested in. Well, actually, that's the easy part. The much harder part is going beyond that and flipping it around so they're coming for the things they don't yet know they're interested in. That's the, t that's the challenge. I hope that two years from now, I'll be able to give you an example of how we've done it. Uh, we just did something uh, that functioned that way in terms of bringing in new audience uh, that I should mention, and that was for, for 12 years now, we've been doing an, an exhibition every other year that featured emerging Los Angeles artists. This year, we decided to call it a biennial and put the title of Made in LA on it because we thought maybe it would help bring some attention to it. Well, indeed, it was the largest attended exhibition or one of the top three largest attended exhibitions we've ever had. We had huge crowds. It was because we sort of packaged it in a way that people knew what they were going to be seeing when they got there. The whole idea of things being new, emerging artists, the whole idea of Los Angeles being the center of it. This was very appealing to people. And so we know that this will, people like rituals. People like to know that in two years, it'll come back again, and the, you know, it's like the Venice Beach Art Walk. That is a hugely successful thing for this city. Um, something we're doing starting next week, I think, is we are bringing in an artist named Jonathan Horowitz, who simultaneously around the country is going to be presenting uh, something called Your Land, My Land, Election 12. And the Hammer very much likes to function as the, a kind of a west side community center in a way. And so this fits perfectly with our mandate. We're going to, he has a gallery where we will have MSNBC and Fox News on simultaneously. A red carpet going down in the middle of one, of one side and a blue carpet on the other side. And it'll be, const it's a, a space for gathering, a space for conversation. We'll show the debates, all the debates that are happening, and of course we'll be open very, very late on election night. But the idea is um, to gather people, especially in our neighborhood. I mean, I often say, I think more people know about us in Berlin than people in Westwood. So it's a way of really reaching out and saying, come on down if you don't want to sit in your living room and be screaming at the TV all by yourself. You know, here's, do it with us. So that's one thought. You also have your Artists as Bartenders program, which works pretty well, right? <laughs> she has a lot of good programs that work. It's true. Um, I don't know. You know, a lot of people have commented or charged me with the idea that I, we uh, built uh, the sculpture Levitated Mass with a, moving a 340-ton rock, uh, a work, beautiful work by Michael Heiser, and that it was all done as a PR stunt to engage people in communities that hadn't otherwise gotten to the museum, which it totally did. I think you probably, there was like an impromptu festival for 20,000 20, people gathered in Long Beach around the rock and people were painting the rock and, and we had a, a, um, a free week for all the zip codes that uh, were inconvenienced by the travel. And somebody said, oh yeah, you did it. It was totally a PR, all about it being a PR stunt. And I said, well, you know, the Egyptians built their pyramids as a PR stunt and that worked out pretty well. That, the idea of communicating through art on a large scale to a larger public is inherent in the whole history of art. And I think we're, um, one of the things I would say, and I, it's about that project, is that I kind of believe that museums should be invested not just in 
bringing things and showing art that already exists, but in helping to bring art into being, to being an agent of that building of culture, not just showing culture. And I think that's been true in the long history of art, that cities, I mean, we don't have pharaohs and kings and queens anymore, so this job of creating culture, making things that might even last other generations has sort of fallen to museums. And I think that obviously then you do have to engage a larger public in that interest of that building project. And so actually even the artist Michael Heiser, who's not known for his making work to bring lots of people, knew that you know, that was a tradition of ancient times. You move big stones and people pay attention. And uh, it's notable that when the Metropolitan was a fledgling museum, uh, just in the 18, late in the 1860s, um, New York brought the uh, uh, Cleopatra's Needle from Alexandria, the um, obelisk, to sit next to the Metropolitan at Central Park, and people lined the streets in the same way and learned where that cultural center was because of that. And I guess the kind of comment is, is we don't need to steal an obelisk from Alexandria. We can make our own art with our own California artists. And I think that's partly engaging the public to do that. And, and so I guess spectacle's a little bit part of it and can be, even though sometimes that's a bad word in, um, in, in art criticism circles, that artists do want to communicate to large public. Timothy, let me ask you, do you um, see the Getty also as a, a place for creating new art, um, fostering new art, facilitating new art in the way that Michael has described his vision for LACMA? Yes. Um, you know, the, the mission of a, of a museum isn't set once in concrete and, and, and stays that way forever. Um, the Getty, in its own collecting, has uh, evolved uh, from what Mr. Getty collected. You know, other departments were created, like manuscripts and photography and so on. So the role of the museum, in the broad sense, should continue to evolve also. Um, you know, its engagement with contemporary art has been less than my colleagues here, um, largely because there was a perception that, that contemporary art was already well represented by those institutions and, and uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art itself that we were talking about earlier. Um, but, you know, we're always, I, I can only speak for myself because, as I said, I'm 32 hours into the job. Um, but I'm certainly open to the idea of the, um, the Getty playing a large role in the creation of art in the future. Yeah. And you have the Getty Garden, I mean, the Robert Irwin Garden. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. He's not miked. Oh, Sorry, you know, cast, cast he mentioned the Owen Garden at the Getty as being an example of where through the, the construction of that as part of the, the Getty Center. Um, we have indeed recently been involved in creating a major work of art. Absolutely true. Before we open this up for questions from the audience, um, I, wanted to, I took questions from LA Times readers um, and they came to me in various ways. When this one came um, through Twitter from the New York writer, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher his name, Harag Vartanian. He's a writer, curator, blogger in New York. Um, and so I wanted to uh, hit you guys up with this question. Um, I think Timothy may have answered it already in some ways. But um, the question is, and I'm reading directly, can you ask them about the Eurocentric bias in their collections and what they're going to do to remedy it and reflect the multi-nature of LA. Assuming he meant multicultural nature of LA, but he hit his Twitter word count limit, <laughs> character count limit. So, um, well, some museums have museums can legitimately have different focuses. Some museums focus on a period, let's say contemporary art or modern art and contemporary art. Others um, on a culture or, 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 or constellation of cultures, and others try to be entirely um, universal, like the Metropolitan and a few others. So I think there's space in the world for museums of all different colors and stripes. Um, I think we do, uh, we've, as from what we've said already, uh, all of our museums in different ways are engaging with communities, the diverse communities of Los Angeles, um, except, and one way, though, if to directly answer the question, what can you do other than through your collecting that engages those audiences and shows those works of art? You can do exhibitions of the sort of material you don't have, such as Aztec uh, Mexico. 
So I don't think it's a simple matter of always having to reflect every culture of your neighbourhood in through the collecting policy of the institution. There's much more to a museum than the, I mean, the core of it is the collection, but the programming often and, in fact, normally goes well beyond that. Um, yeah, I, certainly I would just say that is, um, that's what we've been doing. Our two greatest areas of collecting have probably have been one Latin American and second in Asian art, both in Korean and Japanese in particular. China's harder right now, but it's a strategic plan that's totally approved by the board. Everybody knows that's the priority. So, and I think that's built into our museums now, that awareness that maybe 10 years ago it wasn't. There's other overlooked areas, um, and one of the overlooked areas, if you really look at LA museums, is LA art. It's funny because a lot of museums were started the Getty and others to look to Europe to collect treasures from afar. And if you actually look right in front of you, um, we're missing a lot of things in our collections that are from LA. So one of our other big efforts, as people may know, is like Southern California mid-century design, which does not have major holdings anywhere. So that's kind of the local and outside too. Uh, we just began our Hammer Contemporary Collection only five years ago, and we're concentrating not primarily, but very largely on art made in LA. Um, and that won't last forever, but we do want to uh, make sure we flesh that out first and before we start reaching out much beyond that. But the truth is that the art that's being made now in Los Angeles is by artists from all over the world. And that is something to, that we're really very aware of when this, uh, show Made in LA happened. And we collect, unlike a, a lot of institutions, we collect very young artists. We collect people that are out, right out of the gate sometimes. Um, and that's a, a, a tradition that many university museums have had and we think is, is a, a very interesting one. But we had noticed that probably 60% of the artists that were in our exhibition were, were born in another country. So that's an interesting thing to think about, too, just in terms of contemporary art. Could I just add a footnote? I forgot to mention what is the most obvious and perhaps most relevant um, uh, initiative of the Getty in this regard, which was specific standard time, which this audience will be very familiar with, which was a Getty-sponsored and coordinated project, which did exactly that, celebrating the um, artistic creativity of LA in particular, um, of you know, the mid-century and a few decades either side. So programs like that can have a huge effect on the understanding and appreciation of the um, local artistic um, brilliance of this place. Mm -hmm. And in terms of collecting, and that might, um, in terms of collecting, do you see the Getty's focus changing since uh, it is one of the few museums that can compete with private collectors these days for some of the more important pieces to come on the market? As I said, it has evolved since the, 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 its origin um, with the collection that Mr. Getty himself left. And that is a question that which will, and, and whether it should evolve further, and, in other words, expand further, is a question every responsible director and, and, and board of trustees ought to ask themselves on some sort of regular basis. So again, 32 hours into the job, I'm not gonna say what those possibilities might be, but the question should certainly be uh, continue to be asked, yeah. So these are active conversations that you're having at the Getty? I didn't say that, no. <laughs> you don't, don't you know, Jory always wants the scoop. That's her deal in L.A., a so she's, she'll get it a, out of you. We could break a little news here, but I'm, I'm also happy to let, um, let some of uh, our visitors here ask questions of their own. Uh, Annie, this is for you. Uh, you said that Michael managed to tap into the Hollywood market for um, contributions. I wonder if you know what the word tap means and whether you're suggesting that Michael has pimped himself out in any way. <laughs> I'm just saying he, uh, he, he, he was the first one to sort of permeate that membrane, as it were. He's leading the way. We're right behind him. It's a really good thing. We were good friends for a long time. My name is Ruth. I was in New York this summer and went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was mobbed. It was a um, weekday. A lot of people looking at art. 
And then uh, a few weeks later, I came to LACMA, went to the regular galleries, and there was hardly anybody there. What are your thoughts about this? First of all, just in attendance-wise, you know, we have a long way to go to build audiences in New York, the New York uh, build audiences here versus New York. New York has many more people going to museums generally. And by the way, that's not just a job of the museum because it's people telling their friends and bringing their friends to the museum because they know where to park and where to go and how to navigate. A lot of people in LA, we do surveys, don't even know how to use a museum. So um, it's, it's really, uh, it's a kind of community project to get people to be aware of the opportunity. And of course, there's the cliche that everybody goes to exhibitions, not to permanent collections. It's kind of true, it's more extreme in LA if you look at the statistics, at LACMA anyway. Um, and uh, it's also a, uh, some of the issues of visitation are problems of architecture and navigation. I could give everyone here a test of how to find the, um, some of the American galleries and I bet most of you would fail at LACMA because the architecture is not particularly user-friendly for the collections. Try finding Annie's whole museum. You can find the Getty easily. The Getty, you just look up. <laughs> and that's why their attendance went to 1.2 million after they built their building exactly. And LACMA's was 625,000. Actually, now we beat the Getty for the first year ever last year. And a lot of that is just, just I'm not saying we're going to do that forever. It's great for LA, because right? Now, you went, the Getty had 200,000, went to over a million. Now LACMA is over a million. So there's, you see the surge, but I, I would say architecture is also an issue for permanent collection galleries and education, people knowing how to use a museum and what the pleasure is. And yes, we're doing a lot of things. We're actually doing a lot of programs this year using mobile devices and tours of the museum to try to get people in the permanent collection galleries to see how marvelous they are. But we have the challenge, especially of architecture, but we're gonna fix that in the next decade. We're gonna fix that for the permanent collection. Hello, my name is uh, Hector Wesso. I'm involved with the Neighborhood Council system here in Los Angeles. And I'm hoping that maybe each of you could kind of briefly share what your vision is for uh, getting to the communities of Angelinos in Los Angeles that aren't your typical museum-going communities and uh, maybe families, young people, or communities of color that uh, aren't usually the museum-going type. The school programs are incredibly important. I think that's when they are a captive audience. They're at school, they can get brought to the museums and provide an experience that is really memorable, really interesting, really stimulating. Um, the Getty just went through a very difficult process of changing the way it um, uh, organizes its uh, uh, program of school visits, um, hired a whole new raft of docents, um, and what that has meant that uh, 50% more school children are now being taken through the Getty on a, uh, a tour which is actually led and organized by an instructor uh, than was happening before. And I think giving, making those experiences really memorable and interesting I think is one of the absolute keys and I think there's, there's plenty of uh, evidence, statistics to back this up. But we all know it, you know, just from our own experiences as children, as parents and so on. Um, you know, make this stuff come alive to young people and then uh, it will naturally evolve and develop from there just by being watered every now and then. It's also very much uh, exhibition-based, and we l really learned this uh, through our Now Dig This, the art of black Los Angeles, 1960 to 1980, which was one of the um, Getty-sponsored Pacific Standard Time shows. It We had an an amazing audience. We always think, well, it's so hard to come from the other side of town, and the truth is that if it's something that people want to see, they will show up. And we had uh, an extraordinary diverse audience visit this exhibition, but a very large population of our black population in Los Angeles was there, and we've seen a lot of them come back, because as Michael was saying, they figured out, first of all, when they came the first time to see that show, that they were welcome, how to get in, how to park, that it wasn't that expensive, that Thursdays were free, that we wanted them there. And I think you just have to keep doing that and the audiences will build. 
Yeah, diversity of programming is really key. And just to echo what was just what Timothy just said about youth is that, yeah, you have to build the generation. Um, one of the most successful programs we have is called NextGen. Anybody under 17 can uh, join for free, and then they can bring their parent, one parent, one person, one parent. So we have 136,000 of those members or something like that. And it's kind of a matter of pride to get your parent into the museum. Now, the Getty's free anyway, so that's great for kids in that sense. But I think youth is important, di diversity of programming. But I can't emphasize enough how when we do surveys, people, so many people don't even know how to use a museum, whether it's free or not. What do you wear? Where, how do you go? And, and, and that can't be just the museum's responsibility. None of us have enough advertising or information budgets to do that. But hopefully in a Twitter, social media age, that the people who do know will share the pleasure with the people who don't know the, the, the great treasures that are there and how easy it is to get there. Um, yeah, that was the other reason, the levitated mass. Now you can just tell people to self-park at the rock, or you can valet at the lamps. But, but I think that idea of the public, um, the public being engaged in getting other people to know what a great experience museums can be is so key, so it's shared. My name's Jerome, and this is a question about access. Thanks, you'll hold that, how sweet. Um, I wanted to thank the Hammer for changing their hours. Many people work 9 to 5, 10 to 6, and by being open later, 7, 8 in the evening now, it makes it easier to go to the Hammer. And I was disappointed in LACMA having recently made the change. Even way back when the Klimt was hanging there, you could go 7.30 at night, 8 o'clock sometimes, and get in and, and see it. And granted, it wasn't necessarily crowded, but so many people, even they want to bring families, can come for an hour or two hours in the evening. That would be great. Also, encouraging more reciprocity between museums. I'm a member of, of I joined OCMA just for their reciprocity for Pacific Standard Time because that was a, a great deal. I know people who've had to join the Corcoran, because their 160 gives you almost everything. But it's difficult, so I'm just curious about reciprocity and about hours. Thanks. I can answer the hours question directly. We did just recently change our hours. Museums do change their hours. We had a lot of late night hours, and after over a decade, um, it, it wasn't being really used that well, and we had lots of demand in other times, like mornings on weekends. So what we did was we shifted our resources there. There's nothing worse than paying for a lot of support and expenses for open time when people weren't going, because that money could better be used for anything, exhibitions, education programs. So we've shifted back. We have late hours, for example, on Friday. We have more in the morning. And it's a constant effort to try to find the best formula. Our goal, and I think everybody's goal, is to be open as much as you can afford it you know, as possible using that time efficiently, so we will. And, and, and then just to the reciprocity, which can be meant in many ways, what happened with the Getty's PST, Pacific Standard Time, and Annie was referring to it as well, is actually historic, not just for LA, it's historic, I think, in the world. No one's ever pulled together an entire city community on this scale of museums from kind of a bottom-up uh, situation, you know, you can talk about Olympics or, or top-down programming, but it started as a scholarly initiative, and it was so successful that people joined whether they were getting money from the Getty or not, and, and I think that's a sign of the innovation uh, here in LA and the leadership that, uh, that can be provided, and the hope is, I think, from the, the Getty is that we'll all work together better now that we've had that experience and there'll be lasting uh, results. Hi, my name is Clayton Drescher, and I've got a question about uh, corporate sponsorship and your philosophies and experience and opinions on how to make sure that jives with your audience and the values of the museum and um, you know the programs and potentially the conflicts that might come up from that. What corporate sponsorship? No. Uh, Annie should answer that in the in the contemporary art world where it comes up a lot and you've been, even in New York. But you know, corporate sponsorship has fallen off a cliff. Uh, since 2007. Um, our numbers are down by 80%. So it's a good problem to have uh, the, those kinds of conflicts. And we're not actually in an area where we're seeing a lot of that um, conflict. But, you know, we went through a rocky time. Uh, and, and it's going to take a while for, a light, I think, that a lot of that corporate sponsorship to come back. But It's true. There are very few corporations. Uh, 
major corporations who give in this town. We just uh, had a wonderful relationship that we developed with Wells Fargo. They're incredible in terms of culture, giving to culture here, but they're very unusual. Um, that's not the case in most other cities, but in this city, corporate is not something we even look for necessarily. Um, as to reinforce what Michael said, it's a nice problem to have if you can get it at the moment, and it has fallen off a cliff. Um, I've been a museum director in three continents over the last uh, 17, 18 years, um, and I've not had, and lots of corporate sponsorship, not in the last couple of years, but in, in, in most of the others. Um, I haven't myself had a, uh, a conflict, an ethical or in principle conflict between a sponsor and an exhibition or another project. Uh, I mean, there were the obvious cases of tobacco companies and things like that. We're through that, I mean, in the sense that we don't do sponsorships with, with those companies. Um, but they're a pretty small universe. Um, and the corporates that want the engagement with the art museum, it, normally it's because something about what they do makes that an appropriate linkage. And the support of culture reinforces the message they're trying to send through whatever the product or, or service that they provide. Um, so I, I don't just, I haven't seen it as a major problem in the, at least in my experience, over the last um, nearly two decades. The BP Pavilion was the last time corporate sponsorship was really an issue for LACMA, no? Yeah, I, I mean, we, we have corporate sponsorship actually very generously. You know, Bank America of America have been involved, and we've actually even asked them, for example, to help with the restoration of the Watts Tower. So there, there's, there's energy there, but it's very diminished compared to before the time. BP, that deal was before the crash, and it was uh, BP's relationship to ARCO in Los Angeles, and they decided they would give major grants to a number of California institutions to sort of pull that past together. So then when the spill happened, everybody, you know, somehow we were supposed to give the money back, but it didn't seem appropriate or really practical at that time. And it was given with very good intentions for the community of Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Sarah Wookie, and I just had a question for Annie and Michael. Um, I just noticed there's a trend to bring in artists as part of the public engagement programs and reaching an audience. And because of a lot of those artists aren't producing objects, tend to come from performance or dance. I'm, I'm not sure how to exactly articulate this, but I'm curious how those artists are valued or considered in the institution uh, next to artists whose work you are collecting and, and, and showing. Equally. And uh, we make a really big point of that. And actually, it took a little bit of internal education, not in the curatorial department, but in the other departments of the museum to explain to the people in administration and the people who we're so used to working with artists in a particular way, that these weren't just these performances or this a public engagement project wasn't just like some side thing that we, this was, these artists were to be treated exactly the same way, valued exactly the same way. And it's been a very interesting process actually because it didn't come naturally, surprisingly. And uh, it's also, these artists are generally speaking forging new territory for themselves as well. So it's, it's, not, it's not easy, I must tell you. It's a very interesting exploration and experiment and something that we're all learning a lot about. But it's been much more complicated than I ever could have imagined. But it's a great dialogue because they challenge us. These artists challenge us much more than you know people who we're very accustomed to working with. Yeah, I think if the implication of the question is, is it a lesser engagement to be working that way versus being collected? I, I don't think so at all. We all pay the artists who, who do this work, and I think it's actually the opposite. Why should the institution be a box, and we decide what the box looks like, and then we just put the artwork inside? Artists should have a role in shaping the box. I mean, the artists are, they are seers. They do shape the future. And I guess in, I feel like in ancient times, artists were deeply involved in the shaping of architecture and art and space and other things. And so we do a lot of it. I think artists are immensely valuable in not just being inside the frame, but shaping the frame. So 
you know, John Baldessari designed our logo. Uh, Chris Burden is our entrance. Uh, it's uh, Barbara Kruger sort of is the major architectural feature of the Broad Building. So I, I'm very excited about that. Robert Irwin does the palm trees. I think it's an exciting engagement, and it comes out of a practice, especially in the 70s, I think, of artists of, that we know, where it became exciting to shape conditions and environment as practice of an artist and not just to make objects. Michael, you brought it up that uh, how many people were coming to the museum every year and the Getty was so much higher and of course the Getty is free. Um, I see this argument come up on Twitter actually quite a lot that if uh, museums were more, were more affordable, you, that the admission would go up, um, you could make more money in book sales and cards and you know that sort of thing and really your money is coming from donors rather than five dollars ten dollars three dollars whatever the admission is we'd love to make our museum free um, there's also an argument though because we brought a professional in to talk to us about this when we were trying to figure out if we should raise our price that if you make something free it actually doesn't well, obviously the getty disproves that but there is an argument that can be made Thursdays are our free days. Our, atten our uh, admission is $10 all other days, but we're free to students. And lots of other people, too. Uh, uh, yeah. um, I, I'm a great believer in, in free entry. And there are situations in which going free actually makes you more money. Um, it's not always the case, and it, it, but in one of the museums I've been involved with, the one just before coming to the Getty, the Fitzwilliam in Cambridge, by being free, we were able to attract audiences at the level where we could still attract corporate sponsors because we had not 20,000 people to an exhibition, but 100,000 people to an exhibition. So that was money we just wouldn't have got otherwise. We were able to show the community engagement, outreach, and... Um, uh, buy-in, if you like, by the community to the government, sources of government funding, uh, trusts and foundations. So we did much better financially by being free than the relatively small amounts we would have made after you've built in all your costs by charging for entry. So it can work. Now, it doesn't work everywhere, and I think each museum and each city, and it's the size of the, the variables are many, and they all interact. It's the size of the city. The si therefore, the size of the community, it's the other sources of resourcing that that museum has. So I don't think there's one right answer for everyone. We all, I think, there's no question that as museum directors, we'd all love to be able to open our doors freely and have as many visitors as possible. Um, I've been lucky that three of the four museums I've been in have, have done that. On the one that did charge, we, I pushed with the, um, which was Melbourne, we pushed very hard with the ministry to be able to um, take away the charge to the um, permanent collection. We still charge for exhibitions, but there were a lot of naysayers who said, well, people won't value the experience, they won't come, I mean, they'll, maybe the, the attendance will stay the same. We took away a $6 charge and the attendance more than doubled in the very first year. In my mind, there's no question that uh, even a relatively small entry charge is a major hurdle for many people. In fact, the ones you most want to come, for whom that $6 is really quite a significant amount, they're the ones you lose. They're the first you lose by charging. The people who are, can afford to collect, can have, have done an art history degree, um, go to museums around the world, they can still afford it. They can still come. It's the people who haven't had all those benefits, but you really want to open their eyes to what an art museum represents, and they're the ones you lose by charging even a, a relatively small amount. Um, yeah, we have a lot. I think the key, we do have a lot of free hours. I think it's a myth that everybody, that not everybody has to pay to go to a museum. I mean, we are not entirely free. We have a lot of free hours. We're free in the afternoons to county residents. Um, holiday Mondays, thanks to Target, a corporate sponsor is free. They're, they're our biggest attendance days. So there's a lot of time to come for free. I can be honest. I'd rather be free. It would severely limit the kinds and number of programs we could offer because our budgets would be smaller. We've tried in different ways and looked at free hours. So, I mean, it's something to work for. There are a lot of free hours, so if somebody wants to go to the museum, the grounds are free, the outdoor sculpture, they can pretty much get there for free. Um, and maybe we can work toward that. But there's just something to say is that I think a certain amount of public thinks that museums are, and the Getty is on high, and it was one donor, 
who largely established it. But other kinds of museums aren't like that. They are actually funded by the public, you know, directly. We have some county money, but that's, that's a generous one-third of our budget. So when people are paying, and it's less than a movie ticket, they are actually contributing to the museum that serves a lot of people. And it serves kids and families for free and people who come in evenings for free. So I actually think there's a way also to pitch it to feel like you are supporting um, culture as well. My name is Andrew Gladhill, and this will be a very short question. It's great that Vigetti has so much money and can afford to give people free admission. However, admission isn't free. It's $15 to park your car. So maybe something could be done about that. Thank you. Uh, I will invoke the 32-hour um, uh, pass on this one. Um, look, uh, yeah, that, that does make it uh, absolutely right. There is a cost there. Uh, it's a function of the design. I mean, it's on the top of the hill, certain amount of parking, limited. How do you control You know, uh, It's not ideal. I absolutely agree. And if there are a way to have a magic wand and change the, the physical form of access, and not have to have that parking arrangement, that would be better. Uh, is it feasible? I just don't know. You can uh, also, everybody, vote for the subway. Subway is coming to Lackman 2019. It'll come to the Hammer soon after that, we hope. Nobody's giving dates. And then if we really push, we can get it to the Getty, and we can solve that problem. So everybody behind the subway. Thank you so much.